0: good morning everybody we're so glad that you're with us whether you're joining us online or joining us here in the sanctuary thanks for making Peachtree a part of your sacred rhythm where we get to experience god's word together and rejoice together in community hey i'm wondering as we gather this morning if you were a part of the global media phenomenon a couple of weekends ago Did you participate in what happened a couple of weekends ago where 29 million Americans tuned into this and roughly 2 billion people around the world engaged, glued to their screens, fixated to the internet for this moment right here? The royal wedding between Harry and Meghan. Give me a shout out. Give me a little woo-woo if you are a part of that. Okay, so my sister is not a morning person, but in her time zone, she got up at 4 a.m., to be a part of this. She must be really motivated. There were some neighbors down the street from us. They had their little British flags. They were having a party at the wee hours of the morning in order to gather for a viewing of the royal wedding. And truly, it was magnificent in terms of the decorations, in terms of the A-list members who had been invited. But the person who stole the show that day was none other than this individual right here. This was Bishop Curry, who got a little shout out here. He, he, he absolutely crushed the sermon. He was probably only supposed to speak in four and a half minutes, but he took like a good 16 and a half minutes in the midst of this sermon. And he brought the heat. And in case you kind of missed it, I was, I was not up early in the morning to watch this. We were getting like a car repair done. And so I'm in the waiting room with some other people and the TV's on and they're rebroadcasting this at around like 930 in the morning. And he is preaching up a storm. And so we're in this little waiting room and it's not like we were there for a sermon, but man, there was a sermon on the TV and everybody was watching. But it was amazing to see the different Reactions. I want you to hear, as he talked about the Song of Solomon, and he quoted Martin Luther King Jr., and he talked about a spiritual from the Deep South, and he talked about how love has a power, and he said this, I don't want you to miss it. He said, imagine our homes and families when this way of love is the way. Imagine our neighborhoods and communities when love is the way. Imagine our governments and nations when love is the way. Imagine business and commerce when love is the way. Imagine this tired old world when love is the way. No child would go to bed hungry in such a world as that. When love is the way, we will let justice roll down like a mighty stream and righteousness like an ever-flowing brook. When love is the way, poverty will become history. When love is the way, the earth will be a sanctuary. When love is the way, we will lay down our swords and shields down by the riverside for war is no more. When love is the way, there's plenty of good room, plenty of good room for all of God's children. When love is the way, we actually treat each other like we are actually family. When love is the way, we know that God is the source of all of us. When we are brothers and sisters and children of God, brothers and sisters, that's a new heaven, a new earth, a new world, a new human family when love is the way. Now that's some preaching. And you may not get any preaching for the rest of the sermon this morning, so I wanted to make sure you got just a little bit of a taste of what good preaching could be like, but it was absolutely fascinating. If you saw the sermon, you not only saw the sermon taking place, but you saw the variety of reactions because you had, you know, people like Elton John who was like stone cold faced or you had people like George Clooney and his wife whispering to one another. You had people giggling. You had members of the royal families whose jaws became unhinged and were like open, aghast and were like, during the sermon, and then you had some people who were nodding off, and you had some people who were nodding in agreement during Bishop Curry's sermon. I would dare to say that his message was prophetic, When we talk about something being of prophecy, many times we have the misconception that prophecy in the Bible is about future predictions that come true. And there are some elements of prophecy that are about predicting the future, but the vast majority of the Bible, when it comes to the prophets, actually talked about speaking truth to power, defining reality. The vast majority of what we see in the Bible that has to do with being prophetic is actually about proclaiming the truth, not predicting the future. And that's what Bishop Curry was doing at that royal wedding. To billions of people watching, he was proclaiming the truth about the love of God. Throughout the course of this series of messages, as we go throughout the summer, we're going to be talking about the profit margin. We're going to be looking at the most ignored, the most underrated, the most unread part of the Bible. We're going to be dipping our toes in the water in the deep well that is the prophets of the Bible. And I hope that you'll come to the conclusion that I came to when I experienced the prophets for the first time in depth. And that is that without this part of the Bible, you can't really know the heart and the heartbeat of Almighty God. And so I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 2. If you didn't bring a Bible, we've provided Bibles for you to use in your pew rack around you. We'd love for you to turn in the Old Testament prophets to Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah is relatively easy to find. It's a big book, and we're going to be looking towards the beginning of Jeremiah chapter 2. should be about two-thirds the way in your Bible. The reason we start with Jeremiah is that Jeremiah was the first prophet that really spoke to me. I was in seminary. This was just as an ignored part of my functional Bible and what I knew of the Bible. And I took a class in the prophet Jeremiah and the character of God took on a whole new meaning for me. Let's read the first 13 verses of Jeremiah chapter 2. The word of the Lord came to me. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says. I remember the devotion of your youth how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown, Israel was holy to the Lord. The first fruits of his harvest and all who devoured her were held guilty and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, you descendants of Jacob, and all you clans of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us out of Egypt and land us through a barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and ravines, a land of drought and other darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives? I brought you into a fertile land to eat of its fruit and rich produce. But you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. The priests did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal, following worthless idols. Therefore, I bring charges against you, declares the Lord, and I will bring charges against your children's children. Cross over to the coasts of Cyprus and look and send to Kedar and observe closely and see if there has ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens. Shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water. And they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot Hold water. May God bless not only the hearing and the receiving, but also the putting into practice, the living out the embodiment of God and his word. One of the primary images, not just in the Old Testament or in the prophets, but throughout the Bible of our relationship with God is that the Bible describes it as a marriage, that it seems that God wants to have this committing covenantal Loving relationship with us. Did you notice the wedding language in this passage where it said in the second verse, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me? And yet now this relationship has become severed, it's falling apart at the seams. There was a study that came out recently that absolutely fascinated me. It's a study that took place in the state of Virginia. And in this study, they uh, got a, a group of women to sign up, and they were testing how people responded to anxiety and, discomfort. and the way that they produced this study is they put a little anklet around the woman's ankle and they told them that they might experience a mild electric shock. I have no idea who would sign up for this study or would be a part of it, but apparently they paid people and people were willing to do it. And so they put the little anklet around their ankle and they said, you know, you may or may not receive this mild electric shock. And it will hurt if you do receive it. Now, what was interesting is that they were testing the way that people's brains reacted to this potential stimuli and this pain, but they also told people that they could have a bit of comfort. They asked each of the participants and said, if you would like, you can have someone to hold your hand. You can go through it by yourself if you want to, or you can hold the hand of someone who's available. So these were the options available to the woman here. The options were that you could do it by yourself, You could hold the hand of an available stranger, you could hold the hand of a partner, or you could hold the hand of your spouse if you were married. And so what I want you to do as we kind of enter into this study, I want you to turn to someone next to you and answer the question. If you had that anklet on and you were given that choice, what would you respond? Would you hold someone's hand? And if so, who would it be? Ready, set, go. Turn to somebody next to you. We've had some awkward moments this morning in worship when you've had married couples sitting next to one another and they said that they'd rather hold a stranger's hand. Um, our counseling ministry at Peachtree is called LifeGate. It's at this part of the campus and after worship we'd be glad to get you plugged in with a, a good counselor uh, if, if you're married and you chose the stranger's hand. Um, so here's, so here's where this takes a twist, because this is not what they thought they were measuring, but something that they discovered. They were using a functional MRI scan, so they are actually mapping out the parts of your brain that light up when you are experiencing this comfort and this Anxiety, the comfort of potentially holding someone's hand. And so, you know, here's what your brain looked like. If it was just yourself, here's what your brain would look like. If it was, you know, holding the hand of a stranger. And so they would do all these different brain scans and they found something that absolutely shocked them. What they found out was that as someone's brain looked a particular way when they were married, and they thought that that would be at least analogous and similar to the brain scan of the person who was holding the hand of someone that they were in a committed relationship that they were cohabitating with, but they weren't married. But what they discovered was this, that even though on the survey people reported being in a loving, committed relationship, that the brain scan of those who were cohabitating together, just living together, actually looked more similar to the stranger's hand than it did to the married couple's brain scan. In other words, if you're living together, you may think that you're committed, you may feel like you are in that type of stable, loving relationship, but your brain knows a difference. That there's a difference between your brain when you're cohabitating and your brain when it experiences the security of marriage. Now, you might be thinking that I'm bringing this up today to provide social commentary on relationships today, and I think there are implications to this science and to the biblical wisdom about what marriage is and why we think it's good for us and our bodies and our minds and our souls. But that's not why I actually bring this up. The reason that I'm bringing this up is when you think about your relationship with Almighty God, would you think that it's more about God as stranger? Would you think of it as more of God as someone that you're kind of living with? Or would you think of it in terms of that your relationship with God is more like a marriage? Because I'll tell you this, God designed a relationship with him to be like a covenant, to be like marriage. And your brain and your body and your God knows the difference between those types of relationships. The way that the Bible describes uh, kind of an inadequate, unfaithful form of a relationship with God is idolatry. And you may see an image like this and hear of idolatry, and you may go, yeah, this is something that ancient people, primitive people, did. They worshiped animals and things of that nature and statues, and we're way sophisticated. We don't do that today. But that's not what idolatry is at its core. I love how St. Augustine describes idolatry. He says, idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used or using anything that is meant to be worshiped. And as you look at that definition up on the screen, do you think that there's some modern day forms of idolatry that go on in our lives today? Think about some of the things that we tend to be idolatrous about, career or family or money or pleasure or fame, entertainment, religion, success, comfort, approval, power, culture, and your possessions. Anytime you take a good thing and you turn it into an ultimate thing, you have engaged in an act of idolatry. Idolatry is when you give weight to something that cannot bear it. And this is the primary nature Of Israel's relationship with God. That the prophet Jeremiah comes onto the scene to proclaim a truth to power. And he says in verse 5 they have followed worthless idols and have become worthless themselves. You will become whatever it is that you worship. If you worship fame, you might become famous. But that's all that you become. If you worship money, you may accumulate a lot of resources. But as Jesus says, you will have received your reward. You and I will become more like what we worship. When it says that they followed worthless idols, it actually is the language there is literally they chased after worthless things and became worthless themselves. The Hebrew word, and if you got your own Bible, circled the word worthless. This is also the word meaningless in, uh, when it talks about the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Meaningless, meaningless. It's also uh, a word that we'll see that is in great contrast to the Old Testament word ruach or spirit. When it talks about God as spirit hovering over the watery chaos before the dawn of creation, that's the ruach of God. When it talks about how Israel uh, was first conceived in humanity in Adam and in Eve, that God formed them out of the dust of the earth and breathed into them. That was the ruach, the, the spirit of God, that he breathed into their nostrils and gave them this life-sustaining, eternal breath. That's in contrast to chapter 4 with Abel who was born, who lives too short of a life. His word Abel is where the Hebrew word Hevel comes from. Hevel <laughs> means vapor. It's here in one moment and gone the next. Ruach, that life-sustaining spirit, hevel, here in a moment and immediately gone. So in Hebrew, it says, they chased after vapor, hevel, and became hevel, or vapor, themselves they started worshiping things that they weren't supposed to worship started using the one they were supposed to worship and they became less and less substantive and real as they started to fade away and so the prophet Jeremiah summarizes it this way he says my people have committed two sins And notice the first part of this is in relational language. It's not just about breaking some old rules. They have forsaken me. They've forsaken me. Can you hear the heart of God in that? The spring of living water. And they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns, that cannot hold water. The imagery here is they've got a cracked piece of pottery that they're pouring water into and it's got so many cracks so many holes that all of the water just leaks right out of it they could keep pouring more and more and more into that but no matter how much they do it just leaks away i wonder if any of you have seen this show the greatest showman anybody seen this show a little shout out. Anybody like this show? Any husbands whose wives dragged you to go see this musical in the theater? Anyhow, great show. Hugh Jackman starting it, starring in it. Fantastic portrayal of... P.T. Barnum in a musical form of the life of how he grew up in obscurity and in poverty and through an incredible act of will and imagination discovered the art form of the circus and amazing and dazzling the crowds together, giving them an absolute spectacle that they could experience the joy and the wonder and the diversity of what life brings to us. But there comes a part in his life when even though he has achieved great fortune, even though he has made more money than he ever dreamed, there's something that's not enough. It's not enough because the upper society looks down their noses at his form of entertainment. And so he comes across this haunting voice in the person of Jenny Lynn, the soprano from Europe who could dazzle the crowds and he agrees to become her manager and her investor on a tour in the United States, and the empty vacuum of her soul and his soul line up together in the song that says these words. All the shine of a thousand spotlights, all the stars we steal from the night sky will never be enough, never be enough. Towers of gold are still too little. These hands could hold the world, but it'll never be enough. Never be enough. Your life and mine is often like that cracked cistern. You could keep pouring fame, glory, money, the approval of others in it, and it will never, ever be enough. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be given to you as well. Jesus said to the woman at the Samaritan, the Samaritan woman at the well, he said, anyone who drinks this water will become thirsty again. It'll never be enough. But anyone who drinks of the water that I provide will experience rivers, streams of eternal water. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Those who come to me will never be hungry. Those who believe in me will never thirst. If you chase after vapor, you become more vaporous you will become more like that which you worship. So let me ask you, Peachtree, what are you worshiping each and every day? And you can say, I'm committed to worshiping God. But unless you're really wedded to him and his spirit, Your brain and your body knows the difference. And he did not just come to extend you a helping hand. He came to offer his life in exchange for yours. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This table is considered to be the rehearsal dinner for the great wedding feast You and I are called the bride of Christ and he has come so that we might not just experience love but experience the only source of satisfaction. Without him, it'll never be enough. With him, you can live with a container that overflows let's pray. Our loving and eternal Father, we thank you. We thank you for inviting us to be in that kind of relationship with you. And Lord, we sometimes, like in the times of the prophets, need to hear the truth proclaimed to us. And it might surprise us, and we might have a variety of reactions to it, but your eternal truth has never changed. I pray, God, amidst the uncertainty, the anxiety, even the mild pain of this life, that you will not only extend your hand, but that you will invite us to be in that loving relationship, that eternal marriage with you. Thank you, God, that you didn't just come to dwell for a while, but chose to live permanently, to be wed to us, And so, God, I pray for anyone here whose life is lived by self or by stranger or by the illusion of the wedding of your souls. Lord, you extend your hand in the greatest of royal weddings, the most lavish of feasts, And that invitation is not given to just famous actors. It's given to us. And so meet us, God, at this fellowship. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said.